Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Tim King discusses, in the shadow of Houdini, a look at the magical secrets of fictioneer Walter B. Gibson and the stories he wrote of the shadow. Tim is a career investigator for the military and intelligence services, and a member of the Society of American Magicians. He has a forthcoming book on this topic, also titled, In the Shadow of Houdini. This event was recorded on Saturday, August 21, 2021, at PulpFest 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is, <laughs> My name is Tim King, and I love the shadow. Um, I love movie shadow, I love radio shadow, I love comic shadow, and I've really fallen in love with the novels, particularly those written by Walter B. Gibson. Some of you uh, may remember a few years back I was here uh, commenting on the similarities that I saw between the agent network and the techniques and some of the things that were going on with the shadow and, um, and with counterintelligence and intelligence activities. And I was just really struck by how accurate they were as they were practiced back in the 30s. Well, fast forward, now it's 2021. I've, my love for the shadow has only grown, but particularly Walter B. Gibson's shadow. And so I want to share with you some of my observations um, that we have. I think everyone is familiar with Harry Houdini, likes Harry Houdini, likes magic. If you don't, you may not be in the right place. Um, the far left, you see a young Walter B. Gibson as he's graduating Colgate University. Uh, in the middle, Walter B. Gibson in his prime when he was writing as Maxwell Grant. And then on the far right, established uh, you know, senior figure, writer emeritus for Pulp. What I didn't know initially was uh, what the connection was between Walter B. Gibson and Harry Houdini. So even as a young boy, maybe eight or ten, Walter B. Gibson got exposed to magic and fell in love with magic, studied it nonstop. He came from a relatively wealthy family. They had the money to give him um, all kinds of magic references. He grew up in the Philadelphia area, a lot of magic stores, prop makers, magicians, historians, uh, eclectic bookstores, all out of Philadelphia. So he's in the right place at the right time. The more I read Walter B. Gibson, the more I was spellbound by some of the ideas, plot twists, the devices that the shadow had, some of the characters, some of the, he was famous for the plot twist and the plot twist within the plot twist. And I was just mystified. How did he come up with this? Particularly, if you know the story, he went into Street and Smith on accident near, near Christmas of 1930. By 1931, they have already published the first shadow novel, right, just to establish the trademark, the copyright for the name. And so I always just thought, just sort of as a, you know, Many of us are aspiring writers. Where did he get all the inspirations for this? Well, the more I learned about Houdini, the more I realized that the early 30s, so as Will Murray would have said, the, the, the formative phase of The Shadow, 1931 to about 1935, it's a love letter to Harry Houdini. Now, Walter B. Gibson worked for all the magicians, Blackstone, Thurston. He was in Harry Thurston's house listening to The Shadow radio show for the first time when he, when he heard it, right? And that's the connection there. He uh, worked with his good friend Dunninger, uh, with Joseph Dunninger. 
but he also worked with, ghost wrote for, and was close friends with Harry Houdini. And as I was reading Tony Tolan's uh, book, The Shadow Scrapbook, it's, it's attributed to Walter Gibson, but really Anthony Tolan is the force behind the scenes there. I came across this quote, and he's basically saying what I think all authors would say, right? Like, I get my inspirations, or I get some of my ideas from my own life, right? I might reference something. For example, if you've read Will Murray's uh, Destroyer novels, he's got them in Quincy, Massachusetts, uh, occupying um, an apartment building, which was across the street from Will's, right? So you just you draw inspiration from what's around you. And what I didn't know was how much of Harry Houdini that Walter Gibson had put into the shadow. And so in my own mind, it turned into the great shadow Harry Houdini scavenger hunt. How, like, could I find all these little nuggets that Walter B. Gibson had put in there. So let me just stop there for a second. Uh, Walter B. Gibson wrote as Maxwell Grant, right? Everyone knows the story of how the pen name Maxwell Grant come, came along to anyone? Bill. Two uh, conditions that he knew. Um, and I'm, was it Maxwell? Maxwell Holden, yep. And uh, UF Grant. Yes, and the signature. Well, we're going to get to that in a second. So Maxwell Holden, UF Grant, becomes Maxwell Grant because it sounds good. Now he knew both of them. Both of the both of those magicians were people that he knew. He'd worked with. He'd done maybe publicity for them. They sometimes helped Harry Houdini. Um, both Maxwell Holden and UF Grant, part of their repertoire. Why were they were famous at that time? Must be the late twenties, early thirties. They did. Uh, illusions, stage magic illusions that involved shadows. And that was my first key to say, all right, so Walter B. Gibson was going for a theme. He wasn't just going through the magic catalog and grabbing names. He was trying to find connections to make this meaningful. Because remember, although it ran 200, he did 282 of the 325 novels, he didn't know at that time how long it was going to go. So I think early on, every single one was a love letter trying to bring things in. So when I first came to Pulp Fest and I put this up, I don't, I think as far as I know, hope, keep me honest, but I'm the first one, shadow scholar, Walter B. Gibson scholar, to really notice what Walter's done here. So if you look at the top, so that red circle is the official emblem of the Society of American Magicians, right? The Society of American Magicians, uh, Harry Houdini was the president of the Society of American Magicians, uh, in, excuse me, he joined in 1917, he became the president. Walter B. Gibson joined in 1919. Walter B. Gibson met Harry Houdini at his home in July of 1920. And then in August of 1920, uh, Walter B. Gibson mysteriously was on the front page of uh, the magazine for Society of American Magicians called The Sphinx. But what Walter did, and I'll, I'll walk up and show you in a moment, if you look at the, the logo, right, so it's, it looks kind of like a mess there in the middle. You can make out the W and the M and the S. Look at what Walter has done with his Walter B. Gibson and Maxwell Grant signature. Walter Gibson, Maxwell Grant. If you just put the S there, every time Walter signed his name, he was reaffirming his first love, which was stage magic and illusion. Every time you see Walter B. Gibson's Maxwell Grant signature, that's the Society of American Magicians if you just make an S right there. So I, 
I really became convinced that there was more to be found between the statements that he made when he was being interviewed by Will Murray. If you read Master of Mysteries, he's even more explicit about how he drew from Harry Houdini. Uh, when I found this, I was like, holy cow, it's hiding in plain sight. No one's really noticed it. Uh, and of course, the, the comments that he made with Tony Tolan. So I want to take us back. This is modern day 278, as it's known to magic fanatics and Houdini fans. Uh, Brownstone that he bought, four, four stories. Uh, by, by standards then and standards today, it's actually quite massive. So big that they actually, have, in modern days, turn it into multiple apartments. Uh, but the current owners have been very generous in sharing uh, pictures as they've done renovations. They've tried very hard to keep as much of the original flair that was there. And if you look, I don't know if, if everyone can see in this lighting, but if you look at the picture on the right, if you kind of, I'll see if I can get this to zoom in. You can actually see the shadow is there. This picture was given to uh, Walter, and he hung it in his home. Many of you have seen those pictures from his King's Creek, uh, upper, up, upper New York home. And he kept it, and I always thought, well, that's so interesting that he would keep that. That's the, you may remember what the, or can you guess what the, this is the cover to? It's one of my favorite novels, sir. I'm going to tip your tongue. You're allowed to cheat and use your phone. It's okay. <laughs> Hidden Death. Shabam. Hidden Death. Every time you see Hidden Death, see this picture, just like every time from now on when you look at Maxwell Grant's signature and you realize it's the Society of American Magicians, every time you see that picture, think Harry Houdini, and I'm going to explain to you in a second why. So we're going to talk about and let me just put this caveat up front. I am not in any way taking away from Walter B. Gibson. You, you can't crank out that many novels that are that that have endured 90 years. We're still reading them. We still love them. Take nothing away. I'm not saying that he, he wasn't um, incredible. I'm simply identifying what I think he left for us, was, which is a trail of breadcrumbs of how he was inspired. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the inspirations for people, characters that are in the novels, uh, specific places, and I have dozens of these. Bill, I've, I've found the inspiration for uh, the B. Jonas office. Will and I have gone back and forth, and he finally said, you're right, you got it. Now, Will found the Cobalt Club, and I don't know if he's told you guys that. He found the inspiration for that, which isn't Houdini, so we're not going to talk about it. Uh, so, but places, uh, and then equipment, right, because you have to have gadgets. We know that Batman is the unrecognized son of the shadow. Um, we can talk about the utility belt, but I thought we'd start with something that is uh, not really recognized today, and that is something called the detective dictograph, or just the dictograph. So here in 2021, we have uh, smartphones, we've got smartwatches, we have Alexas, we have Ceres, we're surrounded by cameras everywhere. We live in a different age. Back in the, uh, well, as early as 1910, uh, wiretapping and surveillance, there weren't really any laws in place, and it just happened. So in 1910, uh, Kelly Turner created the General Acoustic Company, and he started cranking out two types of recording devices. One more like in an office environment like this, where maybe you know the boss would be there and talk to their assistant or secretary, and they'd push the button and talk, or they'd the secretary would be in another room taking you know, notes of the conversation. That was one style of recording device 
for the, the general acoustic company he sold. The other is, I think, more relevant to us, and that is the detective dictograph. So in a portable um, suitcase, briefcase, a complete audio fine wire surveillance. It's called fine wire surveillance in many of the shadow novels. So here I'm talking about, if you again, we're talking about the early days. So Murder Trail in 1933, Shadowed Millions from 33, Ghost Makers in 32, uh, Gangnam's Doom in 19... Gangnam's Doom, right? Who doesn't like Gangnam's Doom in 1931? Those are all referencing fine wire surveillance and um, dictographs. Well, Tim, why is that important? If it was commercially available, how does it tie to Harry Houdini? Kelly Turner created it, the Burns Detective Agency. Um, so before there was the FBI, believe it or not, there was, there was no FBI. There was the Bureau of Investigation, it was like five guys. But there was the Secret Service. And working at the Secret Service were all kinds of technical officers and undercover people and whatever. And one of the former heads of the Secret Service left... Uh, his name was Burns, and he started the Burns Detective Agency. And you go, okay, I'm still not seeing the Harry Houdini connection. The Burns Detective Agency, amongst others, think back to your history uh, lessons, the Teapot Dome scandal, the massive bribes. If we just go across the border a little bit, there were bribes in Cleveland and Ohio. Still today, some of the most egregious graft and corruption ever done. All those were busted wide open using a detective dictograph. And again, you're going, I, I don't... I don't see the connection. So I should tell you right now, if you have a chance to pull out, these novels, although written 90 years ago, they may, there may be some spoilers today. So if you don't want to know what I'm getting ready to tell you, this is a good time to leave. This is a phenomenal cover, one of the few times the shadow isn't shown wearing his slouch hat. And does anybody remember Crime Circus and what's hidden beneath that turban? Please, go ahead, the headset for the dictograph because in the crime circus the shadow is undercover as the mind reader and the way he's able to read everyone's mind is he has fine wire surveillance all throughout the circus and he's listening to every word they say which is how he pieces it together now I know you're keeping me honest so you're saying I still don't see the Harry Houdini connection and I'm going to tell you every time you look at the cover of crime circus which I think is a phenomenal cover you need to immediately say this is actually when Walter B. Gibson first really met Harry Houdini. Now, he met him in 1915 at Keith's Theater. He was randomly selected to go up on stage and be part of a magic trick. Uh, but he really met him at his home in July of 1920 at 278, because we're going to use the jargon now. We're all in the Harry Houdini Club. And he's there with um, uh, Larry Felsman, a Chicago magic dealer, and as they're waiting in what is considered to be the first floor, so we might think the first floor is actually, you know, street level, but really the first floor is up those stairs, and there's sort of a waiting room, an ante room. And uh, at that point, Harry Houdini would have been about 25 years old, early 20s. And he's, excuse me, Walter B. Gibson is about 20 years old, and he's uh, just bursting with energy, right? Anybody knows the stories about Walter B. Gibson? He was always 90 miles an hour, brain never stopping. And now he's meeting Harry Houdini, and he's just ecstatic. And so his fellow guest puts his fingers to his lips and says, things said here may be heard. Harry Houdini, during the latter part of his career, was dedicated to exposing fraudulent spiritualists. He testified before Congress. 
He gave up a sizable portion of his fortune to employ a vast private detective secret, he called it his own secret service, which included, by the way, H.P. Lovecraft, included C.M. Eddy, included many others, to include the great Rose Mackenberg, all across the United States to, to seek out and expose fraudulent spiritualists. So in order to um, understand how spiritualists were, were cheating people out of their money and sort of stringing them along, he studied their methods and he incorporated their methods. So he had his entire brownstone renovated to run fine wire surveillance throughout the entire house. The entire house was wired for sound. He then would either go somewhere and someone would hand him a note of what would said, was said, or he could go and jack in, because underneath this, this is actually from one of his movies, but he could jack in and pull out an earpiece and someone would tell him, okay, here's what so-and-so just said. You said, think about anything, this is what they said. And then he could work that into his routine. So from the very first moment in July of 1920 when Walter B. Gibson met Harry Houdini, Walter was experiencing the craziness that was Harry Houdini and he was soaking it all in. Now they were, uh, so Gibson was impressive. He was a magician of his own. He had a trick that he showed Harry Houdini called the Hindu wand trick, sometimes called Chinese sticks. Harry Houdini was blown away by this and he actually bought the trick, commissioned others to, to build it, Unfortunately, never got a chance to really incorporate it into his act because just six years after this, on October 31st, 1926, Houdini's going to die from um, a ruptured appendix, appendicitis. But when you look at Crime Circus, think Detective Dictograph, think about how that ties directly into Harry Houdini and the very first time that Gibson met him. The other one that I think is uh, really just incredible, and this is so subtle that many of you if you're not a Harry Houdini fan, you, you may not recognize it. Uh, I drove Will Murray crazy because we would go back and forth on, I recognized the gimmick from Harry Houdini, but I didn't remember where it was in the 282 novels. You know, at a certain point, Will just stops answering my phone. Um, but I found it. So that cover that from Hidden Death, right? That fantastic cover. So it's a phenomenal cover. I don't know uh, if you've read it in a while. It's, it's early days of the shadow, slam-bam action, all kinds of great stuff. And one of the action scenes, of course, our hero is outmanned and outgunned. He's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's hiding behind something, dodging bullets, and what he needs to do is he needs to distract or, um, or uh, somehow draw the attention of the bad guys in one direction so he can go another direction because he's, he's not making it. There's just him hiding behind cover that's getting smaller and smaller as they keep shooting. And so what he does in the story is, uh, I, should, I should say this before I go any further, spoilers. Um, there has never been an assistant, a partner, or a friend of Harry Houdini who has ever violated the magician's assistant secrecy agreement or vow of silence. Never. Lots of, you know, folks today will show how tricks are done to, to do whatever. No one that ever worked with Houdini has ever. Right? They held him in such high regard. He was such a generous person. And so when Gibson reveals what is known as gimmick X in Harry Houdini circles, and I'll give you some references at the end so you guys can do your own research. 
uh, he didn't reveal, he, he revealed a gimmick X. I'll put it that way. So in the story, what the shadow does is, man, I really need to not be shot. <laughs> so he takes his hat off, and from somewhere, maybe his own utility belt, he takes out a series of pipes that are threaded uh, about the size of a pencil, as they're described uh, in the novel. And he screws them all together to essentially form about a three or four foot extension rod. Puts his hat on there and he sticks it on the other side of the cover. Right? So it'd be like taking your hat and putting it over there. And then while the bad guys are busy shooting at it, he's got it wedged into something. He goes the other way and escapes. And then they come thinking, ha-ha, we've got the shadow. And all they find is a broken extension rod and a hat. And when I first read that, I thought, well, that's somewhat familiar. I'm not, I can't remember. Then I thought, well, maybe I'm just remembering it from a Western. Because you've seen them in West, you know, old Westerns where they, they take a stick and they put it on the other side of the rock and people shoot at it. But Harry Houdini had something called Gimmick X. So um, way back in 1903, so 1900 to 1905, Houdini is touring Europe. Why is that important? Well, Houdini traveled over to um, Europe on the same ship as um, the head of MI5. So that's kind of important. And when he was there, he made his publicity stunts by escaping from Scotland Yard and MI5. And then he proceeded to tour all throughout uh, Europe to include areas that were normally denied. Now, Harry is um, an American, a naturalized American citizen born in Budapest. He would later claim being born in Appleton, Wisconsin, but he's actually an immigrant, a naturalized U.S. citizen from Budapest, Hungary, and he is a Jew. I don't have any problem with that, but the Germans and the Russians in 1903 sure did. So mysteriously, he gets a brand new passport that says he's a Roman Catholic born in Budapest, excuse me, born in Appleton, Wisconsin. Huh. It's a pretty good trick if you can pull that off. I wonder why the U.S. government would give him a falsified official document. All right. So 1903, he's in denied areas of Russia. Uh, if you can pronounce that, good on you. I can't. I'll leave it for you to pronounce it. And he's doing a challenge. This is a recreation. And I should say that when this image was circulated, this is actually an image that Harry Houdini commissioned. There, there were no photographs. There are no contemporaneous drawings. And so one of the points that Houdini scholars make is you have to look at it, but you also have to realize that there's no way Houdini is going to reveal his secrets um, completely. Right? He's going to hide the method. He's not going to give it all away. So if you look here, you see this. It's, it's a prison transport. It's you know like a jail, jail, jail cell on wheels. And his task, he was handcuffed, easy. And then he has to unlock the outside lock. And what the uh, Russians did is they backed, it was called a carette. They backed the carette against the wall so that he would have privacy, but also so that he couldn't get any help, right? So he's, he's got his privacy that he needs, and they're doing it. And depending on which version of the story you get, about 20 minutes later, he emerges... No handcuffs. He got out of the caret. Now the question is, how did he get out of the caret? Well, the answer is one of two things. And if you've watched the uh, History Channel special on Houdini's Last Secrets, I think it was a four-parter, 
they talk about the two methods. One method that some people believe is he hid a small saw inside something because he was naked. <laughs> and he's inside this uh, steel-walled, metal-walled, we don't really know what the metal was, jail cell, uh, and he sawed through, this is one version, right? He saws through the floor, at least the plating, because uh, it's, it's a wooden cell, but it's plated with metal. He saws through that, and then he goes out basically underneath. And then, But his, his sawing is so good that when the Russians inspected it, they couldn't see where the seam was. Okay. Or <laughs> what Houdini fans have searched for and have speculated on uh, in Houdini's writings, so he would reveal his techniques, but only after he was done using them. And guess, guess who got to get all of that? So when Harry Houdini died in 1926, he was already working on, ghost, he'd already ghostwritten for uh, Houdini before. He was so well regarded by Houdini and Houdini's wife, Bess, and his assistants, and everyone else in Houdini's circle, they said, you know what, Walter, you need to finish these out, and we're going to give you these books, because Houdini wanted to write books about his tricks, his escapes, and his magic. They gave him all of Harry Houdini's personal papers, his scrapbooks, all of his books, his collected books, from all over. So if anyone knew Harry Houdini's secrets, even though, I think at this point, Walter would have been about eight, <laughs> it would have been Walter B. Gibson. So Harry Houdini knew that the, the gimmick X allowed Houdini to go from where he was to where the lockpick or the key needed to be. Now there's a couple ways you can do that. You can use like a lazy suit and like the ex expanding, if you guys have seen the expanding like scissors, they smash down and then you kind of go like this and they stretch out. You've probably seen those or used them yourself. That could be one. You could use like a, a carpenter's ruler if you've used those. They kind of unfold, right? It's one possibility. Some people think that's gimmick X. But the one that Walter B. Gibson referenced in Hidden Death is the telescoping. Multiple sections about the size of your pinky or maybe a pencil that screw together to make an extension rod on the end of which was either a lockpick or a key because you're allowed to cheat. It's stage magic, not real magic. Uh, and cheat. Now, so if you look at Harry Houdini, this picture, which was commissioned by Harry Houdini, and you look at the size of the cuffs that Harry Houdini uh, is cuffed in, don't those look kind of big to you? That big silver cylinder uh, on his left, our right? So, some have speculated that that's where he kept everything. That, that, that was, they call it a gaff or a gag. That's where actually all the secret bits are hidden. So he didn't really get handcuffed by real Russian handcuffs. He got handcuffed by that. Either way, when you see the um, when you see the uh, cover of Hidden Death, that phenomenal painting that was in his home for so long, realize that was that was Walter B. Gibson keeping his magician's oath, assistant's oath. He kept the secrets. At the same time, he used it and it was hiding there in plain sight for all of us to see. Who doesn't love this cover? I mean, if you like guns or don't like guns, you have to admit, that's striking, right? I read this when I was uh, younger, and I was struck by the automatons and the pseudo-robots and the crazy plot twists and, and uh, of course, spoilers. The secret, hidden in the shadows, robot-like charg 
isn't really the secret bad guy. It's an automaton. It's a, an early robot that's wind up. But it's so distinctive. It makes four or five appearances throughout the story. It's uh, got a turban, uh, which they would describe back then as being oriental in appearance. It's got the robes, vaguely oriental features. I don't know what that means. Maybe a mustache and a goatee. I'm not really sure. But it was very evocative. And it was very clear that Walter B. Gibson had something in his mind. And it really just sort of struck with me. Like, man, it's so vivid. And, of course, it turns out that that's fake, right? That's not really the villain. It's what the real mastermind is using to hide his connection with the underlings, which, of course, the shadow figures out. But I was really struck by that. Like, man, it's so evocative, the kind of uh, uh, exotic, Chinese, Turkish, not really sure. It's very common for the era. And I thought, man, where, where did he get that from? That's that's crazy. I would where where was he inspired to do this? Uh, and the answer is from magic. So in uh, 1867, something like this picture on the right uh, became very famous in um, the magic shows, and they called them circuses of the day. Ajib, the Egyptian, Oriental, right? Because it's because it's not Europe, therefore it's Oriental, <laughs> uh, as, you know, in the areas of the pole. Ajib the Magician. And so that's 1867. 1886, Ajib now, or a version of Ajib, the, the mysterious chess-playing Egyptian, is now with the Eden Musée. Now, the Eden Musée started off as its own building, a circus, a waxworks, in New York City, in Manhattan. And then when it closed in 1915, it moved to Coney Island. And you may have seen a version of this in, I forget which insurance company, but one of the insurance company kind of makes a reference to Ajib. So the way this would work is you go up and there's like a glass booth and there's this, this entity that looks exactly as Walter B. Gibson described him with the turban and the oriental robes, and the vaguely oriental features, and the mustache, and everything is described by Walter B. Gibson and Chark. And you would go in, and you would make your moves, and then Ajib, through the power of magic, and he was a robot, he would play chess with you. And you would say, okay, Tim, that's interesting, but I don't really see the Harry Houdini connection. Well, it's there. Give me a second. Playing chess with Ajib was kind of like, uh, I don't know, what, what would it be today? Uh, the Masked Singer or some of these other celebrity shows where they bring in celebrities to try to do something to compete with other people. So people would go to the Eden Musée to see the waxworks and to see the magicians like Dunninger, Walter B. Gibson's close friend, Joseph Dunninger, and to play chess and to try to beat Ajib the magician, Ajib the Egyptian the vaguely oriental Egyptian. So it was celebrity chess. Well, who played celebrity chess? Well, let's see. President Teddy Roosevelt played celebrity chess with Ajib and lost at the Eden Musée. O. Henry, do you guys remember your O. Henry from back when you were reading something other than Pulps, if you have time to read something other than Pulps? Played celebrity chess. Do you know who else played chess famously to bring attention to magic? 
and to bring business to the Eden Musée was Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini went out of his way. He was always very generous uh, in some cases. If he, if he felt like you were a good person and trying hard um, and were honorable, he would help you. So he tried to help the Eden Musée. He would play celebrity chess and lose with uh, Ajib Charg. Uh, and, and so that's what he did. The other connection between Eden Musay, Ajib, and Gibson, in addition to Houdini, would be Walter B. Gibson's close personal friend, and I'm not joking, close personal friend, Joseph Dunninger. So in his late teens or early 20s, Dunninger worked down the street at a department store by day, and then at night, he was a magician. He did card tricks and illusion and mentalism and all this other stuff. And uh, whenever Gibson got a chance to go to New York, he did, to visit his friend, Joseph Dunninger. So when you see Charg with that, you know, with that incredible cover, if you reread it, and I think you should because it's, it's just a great novel, uh, realize that all the descriptions that you're reading about Charg are Ajib. Ajib the Egyptian, chess-playing automaton robot. Questions? Are we still good? You're picking up the theme, right? Harry Houdini everywhere every time we turn around. All right, Bill told me he wants something a little jazzier. He's not impressed with my Harry Houdini connections. So, uh, again, back to Walter Gibson's book, edited, written by Tony Tolan. Walter B. Gibson flat out said, you know, I didn't just make this stuff up. I was inspired. Shadow Sanctum, his secret inks. You know, I'm in love with the secret ink. Found, found the connection for that, too. Uh, but they're all based on real things and actual research. So I just took this as a challenge. Like, okay, what, what else can we find? What else can be out there? So wouldn't you like to know, was there a real-life place that inspired, motivated, or somehow helped Walter B. Gibson find the words? What I think we would all agree is one of the most interesting parts of the novels. Because one of the things that Walter B. Gibson did, he did lots of things. He created these novels. Sometimes you couldn't keep up with all the twists and turns. Zemba comes to mind. But then other times, what he would do, realizing he really had a brain twister, is he would have the shadow show back up in a sanctum, and he would take the agent reports and cut the agent reports and rearrange them under the blue light so he could take what they thought they saw, and then he would reveal what's actually happening. Or Walter B. Gibson would find a way to recap everything that happened by going to the sanctum and having uh, the shadow write out, okay, here's what I know. And a young reader, now I'm a not young reader, I'm just fascinated by this Stygian gloom, the secret place where he goes, it's completely black. That, by the way, Bill, that's Joe Booth's colorization uh, on the left, which I love. Uh, and I'm just like, wow, I love this. I mean, you can just pop, you can see it in your brain. What? What in the world might have ever inspired Walter to do that? Well, can I find a Harry Duty connection? Uh, yes, I can. I mentioned how um, in the latter part of Harry Houdini's career, he was, some would say, obsessed with exposing fraudulent mediums. The other part of that that I would encourage you to read more about uh, is his sincere friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I think he was, what, 6'4", hulking, you know, Scotsman. And then Harry Houdini, who, if you were generous in men's heels, might have cracked 5'4". 
but they were close friends. Uh, this is back when uh, people wrote letters to each other, and we didn't have texting and email, so you really took time to think out what you wanted to say, and there are many uh, letters. You can actually find these in... So once Gibson got done with the collection of Houdini's materials, they eventually found their way, many of them, most of them, to the Library of Congress. If you ever get a chance to go to the Library of Congress and see the Houdini collection, absolutely do it. But sincere letters back and forth of appreciation, each other personally and professionally. There was a little bit of a falling out when uh, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wife attempted to give uh, a seance for Harry Houdini, which he did not want because because he didn't believe that she could do it. And when she got done, she professed to know a number of things through her spiritualistic trance that were, in fact, completely false. And it, it really it put a you know, conflict in the relationship. But for our purposes, on the left, there you see the Woolworth building. It's a magnificent arch, um, uh, example of Gothic architecture. Uh, it is still available today. It is still incredibly cool if you ever get a chance to go to Manhattan. Um, from 1920 to 1926, again, the same time that Houdini was crusading against fraudulent spiritualists, uh, on the fifth floor of that building was the Scientific American offices. You go, well, what's that have to do with anything? The Scientific American was called in essentially by the American public to be the arbiter. Like, is this spiritualism stuff real or is it not? Are there fairy pictures and photographs or are there not? And so they had a very public series of commissions and investigations to look into anyone who claimed they had supernatural abilities, uh, reading minds, summoning spirits, doing whatever. And uh, so they had kind of a casting call. Anyone that thinks that they have supernatural powers, by all means, come to our fifth floor offices in the Woolworth building, and uh, you can do your thing. Now, for some reason, in the 1920s through about 1926, Spiritualists believed that if you had a lighted room, that the spirits would not enter. It really needed a dark or gloomy room. You could say Stygian gloom. And of course, the scientists that were part of the Scientific American said, okay. So they took the library of the Scientific American on the fifth floor, and it's just like reading the descriptions from Crime Insured or some of the other novels, where the whole room is in black velvet curtains. Initially, I thought Gibson was just thinking about the backstage of a theater, but once I read and studied this, I knew this is exactly what he had in mind. The whole fifth floor library is blacked out with black velvet curtains, and uh, the only lighting came from ambient lighting from ultraviolet light, which allowed the investigators to determine when people were cheating and using phosphorescent dyes, but it gave sufficient light for people to see. So it was a blacked out room filled with scientific equipment, just like the shadows. State of the art, straight out of Doc Savage or any, anything you could, you know. Today we would have a, a gas, uh, gas chromatoff mass spectrometer. They didn't have those back then, but they had everything else. They had high-end chronographs. They had every piece of scientific device because they wanted to see if you can actually summon and talk to spirits, we want to tell the world about it. Sadly, they never found someone that they felt could pass that test. But in the meantime, the fifth floor uh, was the shadow sanctum. Blacked out, black velvet curtains everywhere, lit only by a bluish light. 
And um, once I came across that, I said, okay, that, that's it. So the, the visuals, every time you read a shadow novel and you're like, he's in the sanctum, he's actually in the Scientific American uh, Library. So some of the interesting facts about the, that building at that time, this is going on. And of course, this is 1920 to 1926. This is when Gibson is working with Houdini. He's ghostwriting for him. He's doing, um, he sometimes he's helping him do these fraudulent spiritist investigations directly himself as one of his agents. Uh, he's doing publicity. So he's completely, he's either reading about it in the papers or he's helping him do it at the time. Union Pacific Railroad was in there. Marconi Wireless was in there. Nikola Tesla was a tenant of Scientific American. So it's very interesting and evocative, and I could definitely see where Gibson would draw inspiration to make uh, the Stygian gloom of the sanctum. And then the last one I want to leave you with is one... Oh, we have ten minutes. Nope, we don't. We have three minutes. Uh, is, uh, is one that really just brings it all home. So from the very first novel and all the way through, there's a character known as Phineas Twombly. Later, Gibson will call it Isaac Twombly, and he'll, in interviews, he'll find a way to kind of connect the two. And I mentioned how in the Secret Service, uh, Harry Houdini had folks like H.P. Lovecraft and Rose Mackenberg and, of course, Gibson himself. What I didn't tell you was that sometimes Houdini would disguise himself. And he is very well known at this point as he's in the latter part of his career. So he would go in disguise. You read The Living Shadow Number 1 and any appearance of the old man with the cane or Isaac Twombly. And what you're going to see is that is directly based on Harry Houdini in disguise, exactly as Gibson wrote him, starting with the living shadow and all the way through. He would carry a cane, he would put uh, chalk or other things in his hair to make himself look old, he'd wear frumpy clothing, he would hobble around, and he would be basically Phineas Twombly. These pictures were taken um, as Houdini was investigating a famous spiritualist named George Renner, just down the road here in Cleveland, Ohio, back in 1925, about a year before he died. What Houdini had done, because, you know, of course, they blacked out all the lights, because spirits won't come if the lights are on. He grabbed, Houdini grabbed the spirit trumpet. You know, sometimes spirits can come over to the world, but they can't really speak. So what they'll do is they'll speak through a trumpet. Sometimes you have to remember these things and research them. So what Houdini did was he took lamp black, you know, like if you're playing a... a Sports, and you put the black under your eyes, or whatever. He put that all around where your lips would go on the trumpet. And as soon as the spirit trumpet began to play, Houdini took his pocket torch, his flashlight, and shone it on George Renner, and his lips were completely covered in black because a lamp black was on his face from the spirit trumpet. And Renner, as he was indicted, said, I have never before... Uh, been caught. And Harry Houdini famously said, that's because you have never been investigated by the famous Harry Houdini. There you go. And now you know. Isaac Twombly, Harry Houdini. So now I'm you know, fascinated with Harry Houdini too, much to the uh, pleasure of my friends and family because now I have something else I can obsess over. But I want to share with you just two fantastic resources. The one on top is Wild About Houdini. Uh, and that is run by John Cox. John Cox has been very patient as I've run various ideas past him. He is probably amongst the um, most respected Houdini scholars. 
And then the bottom one is Houdini's Ghost, and that's maintained by Pat Culleton. Pat Culleton is the, one of the original uh, scholars of Harry Houdini and an incredibly generous man. He's given me access to things that as a non-magician I probably shouldn't have, but he's allowed me to do that with the understanding that I would you know, maintain certain secrets. And I would recommend that you go there and look at these materials and then go back and revisit your shadow novels, particularly during the early 30s that Gibson wrote, and just just be amazed at how Walter was able to take ideas from just everywhere and push them together on a tight deadline and really make fantastic stories. And the fact that Lacerto on the left looks suspiciously like Houdini on the right, as far as I can tell, there's no connection. That's from one of his movies, uh, The Master Mystery. But it sure is an interesting coincidence that they look so similar. So thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event podcast is copyright 2021.